For the captain and crew of the Bee Ladybug, nearly every day is the same. They are abandoned seafarers, and they have been stranded on their vessel for almost a year. There is little to do, no money to get home. They haven't been paid for the past six months. All this uncertainty is taking a heavy toll. Sir, I'm so worried because uh, we cannot uh, get our money because uh, our company is bankrupt. And I'm worried also about my family for uh, their daily needs. And my son is uh, born on uh, March 25. Now his uh, first birthday that uh, I've never seen him. Since the bankruptcy, there's been no one to pay for fuel and wages, and the ship was effectively set adrift. She is now anchored off the island of Malta in the Mediterranean Sea. Welcome to the Shoreline Maritime Risk podcast. In each episode, we'll look at real-time case studies, current events, and speak to the experts dealing with critical risks at sea. What really happens when a crisis strikes at sea? And what can you do to protect your ship? Good morning and welcome to this, the 19th episode of the Shoreline Maritime Risk Podcast. Today, we're speaking about all things relating to seafarer abandonment, but more particularly, how we can best use the data on abandonment to shape future thinking around how this, the problem can be mitigated. Today, we have pleasure in introducing a new speaker to the podcast, Andrew Roberts, who's head of EMEA at Rightship, a third-party due, due diligence service provider to the maritime industry with a focus on ESG. Good morning, Andrew. Hi, Thomas. Good morning. And Thank you for this opportunity to speak to you today. Oh, that's our pleasure. And, and let's dive right in with our first question. Well, what I'd really like you to do, given that some of our listeners might not have come across or crossed their paths with uh, Rightship before, maybe I could ask you to give a brief description of, of Rightship and the data services that you provide to the shipping industry. Certainly. I think that's a great place for us to start, uh, Thomas. So let, let me kickstart with our purpose at Rightship. We have but one purpose, and that is to reduce harm. Reduce harm to seafarers, environment, and vessels. So if I just take you on a very brief journey from, from Rightship, we're 22 years old this year. Unfortunately, our, our establishment was one born out of tragedy in the industry. So back to the late 80s and 90s, there was a series of vessels lost off the coast of Australia that resulted in 100 seafarers losing their lives. And in fact, it was, it was six vessels that were, were lost. And this became the subject of the Ships of Shame report from the Australian government. And at the time, two organisations that were involved in the supply chain activity of those vessels come together and decided that action really needed to be taken to improve the standards. And therefore, Rightship was established as a third party due diligence organization to screen the vessels being used in that supply chain activity. Six years later, that was augmented with the addition of Cargill. And today, those three organizations still remain as the three organizations that back us as shareholders. And over the 22 years of our operation, we've grown as an organization now, and we are the largest third-party ESG-focused due diligence organization. That really then informs how we, we provide service and support the industry. 
So if, if you go back to the, that, uh, that those initial vessels that were lost, there was safety and governance related aspects from the, from those vessels that resulted in the, in the loss. They were lost at sea, so there was environmental damage, and of course, the hundred seafarers lost their lives. So that there has always been a focus for rightship on ESG heralding from our origins, and this very much informs our vision, which is a zero harm maritime industry. So we culminate much of what we do through our digital platform, which contains over 200,000 vessels, including the 60 to 70,000 world trading fleet, and is used by around 600 separate organizations in the shipping industry. And that really equips them more suitably to make data-driven decisions about vessels they are using in their supply chain activity. Thank you. That was a, a very full and clear explanation. I think if I can just summarize, I mean, so out of tragedy, something good has come. Some well-thinking and well-minded organizations in the shipping supply chain decided that they better sort of have an opportunity to gain access to independent vetting and review of counterparty risk in the hope of improving the safety of uh, life and the environment um, uh, for vessels trading uh, at sea and, and ensuring that when they enter into a commercial counterparty contract with one or another counterparty that they can be sure they're operating to the level of standards that they would expect from one of their commercial partners. Is that a good summary? I think that's a great summary, Thomas. And we serve a very broad client base that spans across the entire maritime value chain. So very much anyone who has an interest with ship or shipping or a shipping adventure can find utility from the data or the services that we provide the street to elevate that level of assurance and due diligence for them. Right. Okay. Excellent. So, I mean, we've both been at sea and we, we, we've both well versed in the issue of human factors and how, and how they sort of how they sort of feed into the issue of, of vessel safe, safety. And of course, human factors are, are affected to a large extent by the working and living conditions and employment conditions of people who operate ships at sea. Ergo, the segue, I guess, into seafarer abandonment. I mean, was this one of the motivators that, that sort of prompted right ship to move, their, well, pivot their focus away from the technical vetting aspects of shipping risk to include more of a broad brush on human factors and how that might impact safety of those at sea? Absolutely. I think it's very clear that, you know, seafarers are the, the driving force behind the shipping industry with, you know, over 90% of goods still moved by by ships and 1.6 million seafarers roughly in the, in the world. It, it's absolutely critical to ensure that the conditions that seafarers are provided with in that place of work for, for those months that they spend away from home and family, you know, suitable to allow them to, to really thrive at what they do and make sure that they come home safely. And as you say, Thomas, you know, having been at sea as well, if, if you've ever been on the receiving end of having to inform a family of a deceased seafarer, there really is nothing more tragic in, the, in, the, in my lifetime anyway that I've had to do. So it's, it's absolutely front and centre of what we do at Right Ship. Okay, and so, I mean, you know, we're all uh, au fait with the term sea blindness and what happens beyond the horizon stays beyond the horizon, so to speak. And, you know, in many respects, seafarers don't have the benefit of any sort of constitu personal constituency and the ability to sort of apply for interventions from... Uh, political or regulatory authorities on, on their own personal behalf. I mean, they have the advocacy of independent organisations such as charities and trade unions. I'm thinking ITF, Mission to Seafarers particularly, who can advocate on, on, on their behalf. But I guess that, you know, the fact that 
Rightship as an independent due diligence service provider are now shining a light on some of the facts and figures around this really, you know, bad issue in the in the marine industry that affects people's lives is has to be heralded as a good thing. I mean, can you put some size and shape of, of this, this of this problem so our, our readers can better understand really what we're talking about here? Yes, certainly, Thomas. And I, I, what I'll do is I'll just highlight those some of those key facts and figures, and then I'll just move us into talking about how that factors into to, to what we do day to day in our work at Rightship. So if we just talk briefly about statistics, we've been collecting statistics on seafarer abandonment for many years and have data back to 2001. And for your readers on the 7th of February, just last week, we released a report that is free to access and that can be accessed from our website, www.rightship.com. And that will really you know, speak to a lot of the, the, the statistics that we've tracked. But you know, over the last 20 years, this has been a steadily increasing problem. There has been past spikes, for example, in 2009, following the financial crash. And then there was a steady increase from 2019 onwards, which was originally thought to be associated to, to COVID. However, now, even with the effects of COVID subsiding, 2022 saw the worst year on record for seafarer abandonment, with around 103 vessels left abandoned and over 1,600 seafarers. And as of January the 31st, 2023, there is over 9,900 seafarers over the last 20 years have been abandoned, involving around 703 vessels. If you look at the financial impact of that to the seafarers, it amasses to over $40 million in unpaid monies to, to seafarers. Um, so this, this really is a, a a very prolific problem. It's one that cannot continue. And of course, is, is there is a huge focus, not only from Rightship, but from the other stakeholders that you know, some of which you mentioned, charities, ITF, ILO, etc., and IMO, to make sure that this this trend is, is ceased very, very quickly. I think just to, to take us a bit further, this is not uh, an issue that is associated with one particular vessel type, with one nationality or one vessel age, uh, it is much more widespread than that. So that we certainly see trends around nationalities, for example, the largest proportion of seafarers affected this come from India, Ukraine, Philippines. We see general cargo ships at around 31% of, of vessels that have been abandoned, bulk carriers around 8.2%, and then chemical product carriers around 7%. But there are examples of abandonment across all nationalities and across all vessel types, and the same for age. So, you know, we see peaks at vessels between 26 and 30 years, but uh, this is really a problem that, that spans across all vessel types, ages, etc. So if we take the statistics and just move them to the side one minute, and then let's talk about impact. Um, of course, this has extreme impact on seafarers who are under abandonments of financial losses, which then results in mental well-being challenges. Uh, they're not able to repay training contracts they've got. They incur contractual debt. And of course, these things, these pressures mount, and a lot of the seafarers out there feel extremely daunted when they have to go into legal battles for, for payment. And they're not always familiar with those international legal systems. Many are also scared that if they don't, 
if they leave the vessel, then they, they lose their right then to to actually recover any money that is owed to them. So this is a very compounding problem. And, it, you know, there, there is examples out there where seafarers have been, you know, retained on board without food and water, without any access to family, to shore management, you basically cut adrift for periods in excess of a year. So it, it really is quite a profound problem that, you know, perhaps people are not so familiar with. Yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, I think that really articulates the complexity of the problem. In many respects, it's a multi-agency, multi-stakeholder stakeholder issue, which is born of, of malpractice of, of the commercial ship owner in the first instance, but then has to be resolved by many different stakeholders, it seems. I mean, this is a point, this is an issue that's close to my heart. I mean, I've been involved in, 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 in attempts to resolve, provide resolution to the issue of seafarer abandonment since the early noughties when I advocated to the ILO that it was possible to put a, a policy of insurance in place that would give recourse to those seafarers who had been affected in a bad way by seafarer abandonment. But of course, that's not necessarily the silver bullet to, to resolve the issue, right? I mean, it's something that gives some seafarers some comfort that there is there is some recourse to some underlying financial security that's going to indemnify their losses in the event that, as you say, they're cut loose by their paymasters. But I think as the situation evolves, I mean, it has a, a multiplicity of, of different component parts which are, need to coalesce in order to provide the resolution. What I'm thinking about here is political will. Political will, you know, is largely driven by the regulator who feel empowered when they have the tools by which they can apply legislative requirements upon commercial practice to ensure best practice is employed. And as I say, that there is an insurance solution there for seafarers to have recourse to. And indeed, you know, perhaps the PI clubs should be applauded here for the work they've done around providing a, a cover to their members. I mean, there are some some sort of caveats that I would put around that insofar as I, you know, I'm not sure the mutualization of this risk, assuming the debts of another within a mutual organization is necessarily the best way. Because what I was looking at here back in the early noughties was the, the insurance being a, another ticket to trade, whereby, you know, if you're a good operator, you get your ticket to trade fairly simply at a very low cost. If you're a bad operator, which is evidenced by a poor track record when it comes to the treatment and, and uh, employment of seafarers, then either you don't get a ticket to trade because until you improve and can, it's demonstrable that you've changed your ways, or there is an adverse financial penalty for poor poor previous conduct. And I think, I mean, I may be wrong here, but in a way, the right ship vetting model is, is sort of having a, a similar sort of effect of leveling the playing field by actually shining a light on good practice and also bad practice, and therefore prejudicing those who don't, you know, maintain the highest levels of operation. Would I be right in saying that? Is that the sort of intended consequence of what you're trying to achieve here? That's correct, Thomas. And if I can just come back to, to, to that point just in a moment, but just really to, to pick up on a couple of points that you mentioned there around yeah, how this problem should be dealt with or who 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 is responsible for you know, taking interest to this. I mean, the IMO have a quote there that they really say that this is 
it must be tackled and it needs continual cooperation, not just from the IMO and the ILO and from NGOs who are devoted to Siemens welfare, but with also with flag states, port states and other industry groups too. And of course, there is regulation out there under the Maritime Labour Convention of 2006 that is designed to ensure a minimum standard is uh, is available on all the ships. However, there are challenges with that. The MLC convention has been ratified by, or applied to, to around 95% of world tonnage, but it's only been ratified by less than 60% of the, 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 the IMO member flag states. And that really doesn't help things move forward because what that means is on the front lines, there's very weak enforcement of MLC conditions in ports. So if a ship actually calls it a port that hasn't ratified the MLC convention, then there isn't the robust follow-up inspection regimes, et cetera, to, uh, you know, to, to, to try and drive things further and make sure that, uh, you know, minimum standards are being maintained. But I think it's also true of um, of regulation that regulation serves as a as a minimum standard, a bit uh, you know, to which everyone must or, or should comply. That doesn't necessarily take us into the realms of best practice, and I think that is very much where we come in with with our vetting model, as you you've mentioned. So. I think you mentioned slightly earlier around the technical vetting side. I just want to reshift or, or, or reframe that and more to operational. It isn't just technical aspects that we look at in our, our vetting model. It is aspects around ESG that herald back to to our original setup as as rightship, as I've highlighted. And we we perform around forty thousand vetting evaluations per year across a range of vessels. It's not dry bulk, it's tankers, gas vessels, etc. That scope is much broader than just the technical. We look at environmental aspects, we look at things like sanctions and financial stability. An interesting point which can then, you know, you have an organization that maybe is in financial difficulty, then you know, are they going to be putting the, the the resource behind ensuring that the crew have the best conditions on board? So all of these things help to bring context into into what we're we're doing as an organisation. You know, beyond the vet, we have a number of different measures that really highlight where the bad actors are and really bringing that to to the fore. So we take a range of different data feeds into our platform from places like ILO. We have very close working relationships with organisations such as the ICF or, or, or charity. And if we have a visibility through a platform that, you know, vessels have been associated with abandonment, then that is viewable on our digital platform, both at the vessel level and a company level. So we maintain details about the document of compliance company, the, the, the if you like, the operator of the vessel that sits behind. We have a, before we get to the vetting, which is a higher level of due diligence, we have a safety scoring system where we evaluate vessels vis-a-vis the peer group. And, and our standard scoring is a one to five, with five being the best. Now, if a vessel has been associated with abandonment, and we have that, it's clearly flagged on our platform, and the safety score is downgraded to a one. And whilst that abandonment case remains open, the safety score will not change. So an organization going in to use the data in our platform has clear visibility of that. 
Then when we move to the vetting process, we also evaluate this and we will not and cannot recommend vessels for voyages if they're associated to abandonment issues. So we will mark them as unacceptable during the vetting process that we have Either operators who have little regard for the welfare of human rights of their crew must, must not be allowed to, to continue. So we make that very visible in our process as well. I think that's a, that's fantastic, and that's a, positive, a very positive way forward and a very useful tool, both to measure counterparty risk and in, insurable risk. From the counterparty risk perspective, as we've discussed, you know, it allows people to better select their counterparties. Obviously, if you select the wrong counterparty, you can end up in a world of pain and reputational risk as a consequence of your association with that bad actor. You know, we've all seen that too. You know, to a great extent with the ever burgeoning sanctions regime where, you know, as an insurer, we just cannot have any touch point with any sanctionable entity. And it's, it's no different here. It's about counterparty risk and how you manage that. So I think what you're doing here is a, is a great value to the industry. And then insurable risk, you know, really, I mean, coming back from my days of P&I club involvement, we used to have pre-entry surveys, which really focused on the technical aspects of the ship to see what state the hatch covers were in, et cetera. How many eyes on pages do you have from, from underwriters? Because, I mean, they really need to be the ones who are discerning when it comes to entry into P&I clubs or provision of either property or liability insurance. And, you know, arguably, if you have a bad actor, you, want, you might want to think about whether they're an appropriate member to have in your association. So do you have, do you have underwriters and P&I club managers and what have you looking at looking at your data? We, we do, Thomas, have a very broad you know, spectrum of customers that, that utilize the data within the, in the platform, including those within insurance and other finance-related uh, sectors. And I think, you know, it's very interesting when you look, if we just focus on the, on the insurance side for, for a moment. I was reading a, a report recently by the, uh, the Geneva Association and the, the role of insurance in promoting social sustainability. And I was really caught by the comments that were actually in the executive summary by the managing director, Yad Aris, who um, mentioned, you know, insurers can create additional social benefits by weaving social considerations through their, their core insurance activities. And, you know, beyond how insurers advance social sustainability through their insurance offerings, they should pay closer attention to the corporate customers and investees and, you know, look to avoid or to serve uh, or invest in companies who have a record of human rights violations. And, uh, you know, from what I recall that this really stretched beyond the scope one and scope two impacts for insurers into that scope three for service providers to customers and investees. But it was very much that focus of, of going beyond the E and the G of ESG to tackle the S. So to come back to your point, yes, there is, you know, from our side, utility in the data and the services that we provide out to, to our different stakeholders, including those in, in insurance and finance. Yeah, and I think you make a good point about ESG. I think there is an emphasis on the E and the G and probably a lesser emphasis to those looking inward on the evolution of the ESG guidelines and legislation on, on the S aspect of that. I mean, do you see parallels and, or even crossovers here with the data you're collecting being of a benefit to those insurers that have signed up to the Poseidon principles or are you, are you, are you totally separate from, from that sort of data collecting requirement? 
You did, Poseidon Principles is very focused around environmental aspects. And of course, you know, what we're looking at here is much broader than, than just the em, environmental aspects. But there is, a, there, you know, there is a great deal of synergies there. But we are seeing a, a greater shift now by the ever-evolving ESG legislation that's out there. So, you know, again, if you go back to our very foundation Herald from that catastrophic catastrophic loss of lives in the late 80s and 90s. And, you know, throughout the 22 years of existence, we've continued to drive improvement in conditions on board vessels and work to reduce the harm to, to, to seafarers. However, this changing, evolving ESG legislation is, is really changing the dynamics of what we're seeing at, at right ship. So, you know, the introduction of things like the European Supply Chain Act is reshaping the focus on social for organizations that are using shipping to move their goods. And, you know, that combined with greater pressures um, from the extended supply chain is really reshaping responsible supply chain management. So, you know, the, the, the European Supply Chain Act requires EU companies to audit their suppliers along their entire global supply chain including direct and indirect business relationships. And this is now manifesting in other areas. So, for example, the, the new German, German Supply Chain Due Diligence Act, which, uh, you know, organizations who don't have that level of insight into the supply chains can, you know, stand financial penalties and risk, you know, other implications to their business. So, yes, it, it, for us, it's much broader than looking at the environmental aspects that are contained within the great work that Poseidon principles are doing. Okay, thanks for that. And I think, you know, you've mentioned it on more than one occasion. I think it's it's manifest when reading your website that, you know, your mission is to assist the shipping industry to make zero harm voyages. So to the extent that that is the mission, do you engage in any sort of active trend analysis on the data you collect to measure the impact that is that you're ha- you're you're having by the distribution of this data amongst stakeholders within the shipping industry to move towards that sort of ambition of zero harm voyages is is there anything any any sort of measurable data you can look at there to see whether it's trending in the right direction seafarer abandonment for example i mean are you seeing you know any positive trends in I sort of suppose I'm contradicting myself. I mean, when you said at the head of the podcast, this has been the worst year for seafarer abandonments. But I mean, will you be able, will you be able to sort of do any trend analysis around the data you collect and see how that is evolving? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we we do have data. We refer to it quite frequently. So the report that I mentioned, available on our website, openly publishes some of the data that we have. You know, I, there, there is most certainly if we bring it back to abandonment and then zero harm trying to reduce the likelihood or the frequency of of risk manifesting through incidents or you know from a from a social perspective you know fatalities or suicides um you know that th- there is a direct correlation there between the conditions on board the vessel and uh, you, you know those other impacts and again it what, what struck me recently was an article by the chief claims officer at guard in november 22 who said you know the top cause of marine casualties remains human error and you know the decisions and actions taken by the officers and crew are very much impacted by the working and living environments on board vessels 
which affects both the physical and mental health alertness, situational awareness, etc. So, you know, it does follow that improving the working and living conditions for crew is likely to lead to safer ship operations. So that was Christian, uh, Christian Goodall from, from Guard who, who quoted that. But it really struck a chord with me because it's exactly our position in, in, in rightship. You know, we, we have to make sure that, you know, that lifeblood of the industry, that 1.6 million seafarers that are out there occurred for, you know, the conditions that are allowed to ensue on some vessels at the moment are tantamount to forced labour. And, you know, with greater data sharing, we, we live in a very connected world now. You know, so sort of plausible deni- deniability is not a, an option there. It's, you know, people have the tools at their disposal to have greater insight into, you know, the vessels that they're operating, purchasing, chartering, financing, insuring, ex. It is really just about reaching out and, you know, we can help people to understand, uh, you know, the, the people that they are engaging with. Well, I think that's a very good and very positive note to end on. It's been very interesting to speak to you today. I'm a big believer that, you know, more data, the better. Shining a light, creating transparency creates, removes impotency. And what I mean by that is it creates agency amongst those who can do something to resolve a situation on the back of the facts and figures of of, of the size and shape of the problem that was hitherto not really very well understood and, and often hid behind glib things like, well, it's the underbelly of shipping and, you know, all the good operators are not engaged in this kind of thing. And, you know, I think that often diverts the gaze away from what the real issues are. And, you know, I think it's excellent work that Rightship are doing here to actually inform stakeholders, uh, commercial parties, as you say, ship owners and their insurers and regulators to the size and shape of the problem. So all the very best of luck that you that you have with that. And if you want to just finish with some final comments, we'd be happy to hear from you. Yeah, great. Thanks, Thomas. I, I think that what I would finish on is, you know, we, we've spoken around vetting, we've spoken around safety score and our platform and how we can highlight these things there. You know, we have really five tools overall that we have to drive change, the vetting and the safety score that we've mentioned. And, you know, within the safety score, the visibility of uh, vessels or operators, registered donors, et cetera, associated with abandonment. We also have a physical inspections regime where, where we inspect around 2,000 vessels year more on the dry bulk side for, for these vessels but our inspectors do get on board and they verify standards on the vessel they talk to the crew and interrogate areas of doubt and misrepresentation and the inspection validity or not validity but whether a vessel's had, in possession of a valid rightship inspection is, is also on the, the platform the last thing that i would just finish off on is you know we don't tread this alone we can't tread this alone this path alone and we're very much in collaboration with with industry and, you know, one of the tools that is out there available for people is the Crew Welfare Code of Conduct, which is a joint industry project that was launched in 2021 by the Sustainable Shipping Initiative, the Institute for Human Rights in Business, the RAFTO Foundation and ourselves. And that is available to, to download to organizations. It's an aspirational best practice document that allows owners and managers to access and determine best practices around crew welfare and code of conduct. And within that and within our environment, we have a self-assessment program where organizations can actually go on and download, complete a self-assessment and upload that to the right ship platform. And then again, that is represented there. So there are tools out there. And I think from my side, I would just finish with saying, you know, I encourage any of your listeners to reach out to us. You can get us at info, right ship 
www.ghostbusinessclub.com. You know, we're happy to open up dialogue with how of how we can we can raise awareness and help help your listeners to understand more, so that they can push United with us on driving the standards in the industry. Great finish. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Likewise. Thank you, Thomas. We'd like to thank the show's sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited. The world and life at sea is changing on a daily basis. Shipping companies and owners are facing evolving threats from political risk to increased maritime cyber risk. Shoreline has the maritime insurance answers you need to make sure your company is covered when crisis strikes. Shoreline are providers of specialist maritime cybercrime and crisis response insurance policies. To learn more about these specialist covers, visit www.shoreline.bm today.